From the Journeys of Belonging to Blackness Digital Media Project, I'm India Lorik Wilmot, and you're listening to the podcast, Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness. Joining us today is Dr. Catherine Sophia Bell. Catherine is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Penn State with research and teaching interests in African-American Africana philosophy, African-American studies, African diaspora studies, Black feminist philosophy, and critical philosophy of race. She's an author, co-founding editor of the journal Critical Philosophy of Race, a certified yoga instructor, and founding director and owner of La Belle Vie Coaching, which offers executive academic coaching, workshops, and retreats for administrators, faculty, and graduate students. Catherine also offers services specifically specifically under Happily Unmarried and Erotic Empowerment that provide individual and multi-week group coaching workshops and retreats designed to support the social, emotional, and physical well-being of her clients. Thank you for having me. Catherine, let me tell you, I just love the way you're able to demonstrate for so many folks out there how one, an academic can be multifaceted and dynamic, right? That we just don't sit at a desk and like, let's read and pontificate on this thing, right? And then also too, how as an African descended person and woman, how you can truly embrace and live in your truth when it comes to your personal relationships and partnerships and even with yourself, as it is the case with happily unmarried. And then I love this and open to the 69 ways to embrace ecstasy. Yes. (laughs) I mean, there's more, but 69 is such a fun number. And then I'm also, my sun sign is cancer and that sign kind of looks like a 69. So I like playing with things like that. I love that. And so all of this falls under your business tagline, philosophical, purposeful, and practical approaches to la belle vie, the good life. All of that. (laughs) Fantastic. I'm so excited to have you here because you are such a brilliant scholar and you also have this really great entrepreneurial mindset as well that I think our audience here will just enjoy listening to your journey as to how you've been able to combine these two passions, it seems to me. I love it. We'll fall right into our first segment, if you don't mind, because I have so many just different kinds of questions and thoughts. Act one, call to adventure. So for our listening audience who may not know, you changed your last name from Gynes to Bell and Bell spelled with an extra E to honor your maternal grandmother. And and as I understand it, your maternal grandmother named herself. and And you see this act of changing your name as a way to honor that power and legacy. Yes. Well, first, let me say I absolutely love my name. I mean, every time I see it written down, Catherine Sophia Bell, like I get excited at the sight of my own name. So in terms of motivations, oftentimes our names are patrilineal, right? So many, not necessarily all women are given the name of their father and then may take on the name of their husband. And that was my experience. So my initial given name was Catherine Teresa Johnson. My mother wanted to name me Catherine after her mother. My father wanted to name me Teresa, and then Johnson was his name. So that was my maiden name. I got married in 1999 at the age of 21 between my first and second semesters in grad school. And at that point, I changed my last name to Gynes, which was the family name of the former husband. I got legally divorced in 2017, and I'm now very happily unmarried. <laughs> and rather than returning to my that patrilineal name or my maiden name, I decided to go with a matrilineal name to honor my maternal grandmother. So her initial given name was Catherine Smallwood, which was my great-grandmother's last name, Smallwood. But by the time she got to high school, she changed her name to Catherine Bell, B-E-L-L. Now, I have no idea how she went about changing it or even if she went through some legal process to do that. But my mother got me a copy of her high school yearbook, class of 1952, where in that yearbook. So by the time she got to her senior in high school, her name is listed as Catherine Bell. And wow. so there's just something really powerful to me about that. Like this black woman and the 19, young black woman in the 1950s by her senior in high school had, you know, 
made her name Catherine Bell, and that's the name that she's recognized um, as, you know, later in life. She she went on to model. She showed up in Jet Magazine a few times, and her name is listed as Catherine Bell in those spaces as well. You know, that was just a powerful legacy to me, and it was important to me to ta- tap into and connect to that legacy and power of naming oneself um, and have a matrilineal name as opposed to a patrilineal name. Um, so I changed my name to Catherine. I actually dropped the middle name. Interestingly, my mother, when I was changing my last name, she was like, oh, well, I never really liked Teresa anyway. That was your father's choice. That was <laughs> my choice. So she got a chance to rename me. My middle name, Sophia, she recommended because she said, well, you're a philosopher and that's philosophia. So you can um, be Sophia. And then my mother's middle initial is S and my two daughters have the middle initial S. So we were able to share that S middle initial for the Sophia and then the bell, um, it still sounds the same as the way my maternal grandmother spelled it, but I added the extra E just for a little bit of self-differentiation and for the meaning of beauty. I think evident that there was just so much thoughtfulness and care, yes. even in your process to say, okay, how do I go about changing my name? Because even when we go through relationships such as marriage and you're going through the divorce, there is a lot of conscious thought around do people keep their names? Right. Or even when you're getting married, forget about even when you're getting divorced, but like when you're getting married, some people choose to keep their name, drop the name. In my case, I hyphenated. Mm -hmm. I've even attended a wedding where the husband and the wife decided to both hyphenate their names just so that it would on paper as well as the presentation of this new joined family unit that it wasn't like someone was giving up, but they were just more so adding. Naming oneself is so powerful. I mean, I can't help but to even reflect on scene in Roots where yes. LeVar Burton is, as as um, Kunta Kinte is being whipped. Yes. And it's, you know, this whole sort of act of submission that's trying to happen with him being beaten because he refused the name Tobin. Right? right. And he's like, Kunta, Kunta Kinte. Yeah. You know, trying yes. to be broken. Think about that example. I also think about the example with Muhammad Ali, right? Mm-hmm. Where he's like, you know, say my name, say my name, right? Like before the Destiny's Child came out with their <laughs> version of it. You know what I mean? And so, yeah. I See, think I'm not going to say that, that, you know, the cultural model in my mind came, like, I thought about <laughs> Beyonce. Really I, I figured that. I figured I'd put that out there. Once I said it, I was like, okay, this is going to be the connection that comes up. So let me just <laughs> name that too. But that's not quite what I have in mind. Right. But yeah, I think there is something. And I think we have more examples of men doing that um, than women, or the, the, the examples of men doing that might be more celebrated than the examples of women doing that. But mm. um, definitely for me, like I looked forward to dropping the maiden name when I took on the married name, but I also very much look forward to dropping the married name and renaming myself. And for me, it was another beginning for me. Like, who am I in this new chapter, this new iteration of my life? Mm -hmm. And how can this naming process be a reflection um, of that and kind of a a launching point for me for that? So that's been um, beautiful. Yeah, because it's all about identity. And then all these different phases and stages, just, you know, what does our name say about us? And Mm -hmm. then our names, judge. we're judged by our names, whether when we're applying for different jobs or positions, I mean, there are scores and you you know them very well also, but there are scores of research studies in the employment field that talk about racial bias and discrimination just based on candidates' names. Definitely. Um, I think that's a, you know, a fantastic way to pay homage to her legacy. Thank you. You know, like I said in the intro, you wear many hats. Yes. So you're also a mother to beautiful, you know, four beautiful children. Half yes. of them are like adults. It's like, <laughs> where do you find the time? You're also part of this movement around happily unmarried. Mm-hmm. Right? So what's been your process getting to this point? And, and how did you become interested in doing the work you do today? Yeah. So I want to talk about this like in two points. I want to first deal with like the professor academic side of things and then the more kind of entrepreneurial La Belle V coaching side of things. So on the professor academic side of things, um, my process there was I went to um, Spelman College in Atlanta, Georgia, historically black um, liberal arts college for women. I started out there as a biology pre-med and pre-law major with plans to do a JDMD when I finished. And I thought I was going to be practicing law, dealing with medical research ethics and all of these things. But I found that I was like dragging myself to biology class and biology labs. And I was like skipping along to my humanities classes. And so I thought, okay, maybe biology is not the major for me. So I talked to the different departments and I said, look, you know, I want to do a JDMD when I finish. 
How can your major help me with that goal? So of course, the philosophy department had the strongest argument for how philosophy could help me with my goals and help me both with medical school as well as with law school. So I changed my major to philosophy, I think maybe my sophomore year in college. By the time I got to my senior year, I was still thinking about law school. I dropped the medical school altogether. I was like, I don't have a sustainable interest in science to get through medical school. Um, So I was still thinking about law school or maybe international studies. And then I found that my senior year, this was in the late 90s, that there were only 16 Black women in the country at that time with a PhD in philosophy. Moral and personal obligation to increase our representation in the discipline of philosophy. So I went from Spelman to grad school. I did a master's and PhD at the University of Memphis. Um, I had a postdoc there. I had um, a postdoc at Emory University. And then my first tenure track position was at Vanderbilt, where I was actually in African-American and diaspora studies. There was my tenure home or my tenure line with a courtesy appointment in philosophy. And then, um, and that's also where I started the Clayton Black Women Philosophers Conference and organization was at Vanderbilt. Um, And then I got recruited to Penn State in 2008. Um, so I've been here since 2008. I got tenure in 2015. So that's kind of that. That was my kind of professional, you know, academic journey in terms of getting into philosophy and then getting into the professorate. As far as the coaching goes, um, I actually first learned about coaching in that first tenure track job at Vanderbilt. So there was a fellow junior faculty member in the um, department um, that we were hired at the same time. And she got herself a writing coach. And at the time I was thinking, well, like we're academics, writing is what we do. Like, why would anybody need a writing coach? Well, by the end of the first academic year, she had like finished and submitted her book manuscript working with this writing coach. And I had like got sucked into volunteering for all kinds of things. I was on all these committees. I was doing all the things. So I got a couple of um, publications out there, but I did not have the kind of like sustained progress on a project that she'd had. So I thought, okay, well, maybe there is something to this coaching thing. Um, so I, after my third born child, I was on maternity leave and I was preparing to go back to teaching full time after being on maternity leave. And so I decided to hire a coach then because I thought, okay, I need to, I had been pretty productive while on leave and I wanted to kind of maintain that productivity as I trans back, transitioned back into teaching full-time. Right. So I hired a coach and then I ended up being hired by that coach as a coach. So I worked for another company as a coach for academics from like 2011 until 2013. And then in 2014 is when I started my own coaching business, working with faculty across um, ranks as well as administrators and some other high achievers. So that's how I got into that. So I'm going to peel that back a little bit, right? Sure. So a couple of things that stood out to me. There's a part of me that's a bit of a overachiever. Yes. <laughs> I do. Many high achievers are actually overachievers, yeah. but I'm try, I try to do positive framing with high achiever instead of saying overachiever. Okay. So high achiever. Yes. I, I like that. But it's so funny that when I speak to folks that I'm like, oh, that's something that I would do. We were all on the same sort of trajectory to in college being pre-med, pre-law, pre this, you know, yes. one of all the sort of white collar professional pre-courses yes. of study for us. And then there's something that clicked that, yeah. you know, for some, they still stay the course. And I know many of them who are successful attorneys and doctors and engineers and what have you um, doing so many just interesting and phenomenal things. And then you have the rest of us who are just like equally as powerful too, but yeah. we just decided to take something else because it was always an experience. There was always something that was just our heart song. Mm -hmm. And philosophy was that for you. Absolutely. Even within philosophy, you are taking a track where you're not doing sort of like at Plato and Socrates. (laughs) Right. The dead white man. Right. That you are focused on issues that are related to critical race and Black Mm -hmm. feminism and Mm -hmm. things that are African diasporic. So where do you think that really came from for you? To be honest, I think that really came from doing philosophy at a historically black women's college, right? Like, so I think if I had gone to a predominantly white institution where philosophy is taught in a very whitewashed, like Eurocentric Western canon way, I might not have fallen in love with philosophy in the way that I did, which does not mean that I didn't get Plato and Aristotle and Kant and all of those people at Spelman, but there was a way in which at that institution, the way philosophy was taught, like race, class, gender, sexuality, were always already at the center of any philosophical conversation that we were having. So it wasn't like this thing that was being imposed onto philosophy. It was like philosophy is a tool and offers 
um, these kind of theoretical resources for really thinking through in critical ways our lived experiences as um, Black women, uh, uh, issues of class, issues of race, issues issues of gender, issues of sexuality. So I think the way I, I was able to fall in love with philosophy because of the way that it was presented to me in that particular context. And so for me, it was an interesting transition to go from Spelman College to a predominantly white institution where there were all of these mental gymnastics being done to avoid talking about race, class, and gender with philosophy. <laughs> so I went from a space where like that was the center of the conversation right. to a space that I was like, okay, you have to do a whole lot of work to not talk about these issues when they're explicitly there, you know, even in the text within like the Western philosophical canon. So I think definitely doing it in the space, you know, being introduced to philosophy in the space in which I was introduced to it was very important for me realizing that that was a love and passion of mine and really seeing seeing it as a viable option for me to pursue, you know, beyond undergrad. And Spelman actually has produced, like most of the Black women in philosophy, like in terms of a single institution that's produced Black women who've gone on to get PhDs in philosophy, you know, the largest co- grouping of us has come from Spelman College. Wow. Well, that's a nice little plug plug for Spelman. Yeah, for, for my alma mater. And my <laughs> daughter is a freshman there now too. A fresh wow. woman, as we would say at Spelman. Fresh woman. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Um, even for me to think about, you know, how you even described your grandmother. Yes. A womanist, Black feminist, even in her approach and decision around changing her name. I would think that you growing up, coming of age, learning about her choices and really appreciating as, you know, you don't appreciate when you're eight, but you can appreciate it when you're 16, right? So growing up, coming of age and realizing, wow, you know, she's doing some of these things that for, for most people of her generation as you even attributed like wow people don't do that definitely I mean when I think about the women and my family and then like both my kind of immediate biological family but also that extended family with all like the aunties and the godmothers and all of those people I mean they were deeply philosophical like in their lives and their reflections um highly intelligent um, so I was really fortunate to be raised in an environment and motivated by like a full range of examples growing up Um, both of things that I wanted to do as well as things that I was really clear that I did not want to do, (laughs) right? And so you kind of get um, examples on both sides. So I can say like on the one hand, um, I was fortunate to have like amazing black teachers, public librarians, like our family doctor, lawyers, local politicians, all of whom were like close family friends and extended family, or even within my own family, like my mother went back to school after she had me. So she got a master's in education after she had me. And then she went to law school when I was like between five and seven. But at that point, she had me. She had my sister. Um, I had an older um, half brother by my dad and then three cousins. So like there was literally in the house while she's in law school, there are four adults and six children in the house. And she's like, yeah, and I'm going to do this law school thing. Um, you know, and so it wasn't, so by the time I got to graduate school and like got married and had two kids in grad school, it hadn't occurred to me that I could not finish graduate school with two kids because in my mind, I'm like, well, my mother did it with like six kids in the house. So, you know, it's something that could be done. So there were definitely models of, um, just being in the world and doing things, but also, you know, you know, in retrospect, I can see like that philosophical insight that they had without it having to come from like a Plato or an Aristotle, Mm. um, just in the ways that they approached um, the world. Or even my great grandmother. I mean, she didn't get education beyond like the eighth grade, but she read the newspaper all the time. She read the Bible all the time. She would like cuss folks out in a minute, you know, so (laughs) it was like, you know, (laughs) like her energy was, you know, very bold, very like, I'm going to show up in the world. Um, I'm not thinking about you kind of thing. Um, So I do appreciate those examples. But then I also had like on the other side of things, there were examples of like drug and alcohol addiction. So on the one hand, you know, there are people who are like, oh, it would be terrible to grow up with that. But that was such a powerful model of like what I didn't want to do or what I didn't want to be that it helped me not fall into that as I was growing up and going to college and things like that. So what I tried to do, you know, and I can remember being, you know, thinking about this, not as early as eight years old, but definitely by the time I got into high school and college, being really intentional about like how I wanted to spend my energy, what I wanted to put my energy and efforts into and not um, not spreading myself too thin, not feeling like I was doing all the things. So even though, you know, I do wear many hats, as you said, but really intentional about like how much energy I put into different areas and finding the the overlaps and in the spaces where I can feel integrated in the things I'm doing instead of 
feeling like kind of just dispersed in a lot of different directions. And so tell me, how is it that you came about happily unmarried? I got married when I was 21 years old, between my first and second semester in grad school. And looking back, I think part of this was being raised in the church and like all of the, and this also ties to the whole erotic empowerment thing, right? There's a way in which it was like, you know, anything having to do with pleasure in the body is like sinful and wrong and horrible, especially outside of the institution of marriage. And so there was definitely this implicit, well, both implicit and explicit, explicit messaging around like, you know, it's better to marry than to burn kind of thing. So I think that definitely contributed to my decision to get married as young as I did. Um, so that was when I was in graduate school. Um, I had two kids in grad school. Um, then I had two more kids at, at Penn State. So that process is interesting because when I first got married, I was I was really clear about like, I am not the traditional wife. Like I'm getting a PhD. I'm not getting married to like be at home, doing all the cooking, doing all the cleaning, you know, doing all of those kinds of things. And the person I married initially seemed open to that or like embracing of that. But I found like, there was not the corresponding action. So there was lip service to like, oh, of course you're not going to do this. And yet like there was this expectation that I Mm. still do all of those things. So I found, I would say like the first seven years of the marriage was just the battle over like those domestic roles, like who was going to be doing what and really trying to get an equal distribution of labor (laughs) around that. And by year seven, I was like, okay, you know what? I think I'm done. Like, I can't, like, I'm tired of fighting this battle. And, you know, and at that point he was like, oh no, okay, okay. Like I'm going to really help for real, for real, you know? And so there was like a shift. I was say by the time we got to um, state college, there was more of a shift in terms of the distribution of labor. And like, we'd had two more kids and things like that. But then by like year 14, there was still something that was like filling off. It was like, okay, like at this point, he's kind of made some adjustments. He's helping around the house a little bit more, but something just fell off. And so I can remember I was listening to this book, um, The Seed of the Soul. And there was this line about like, you know, if your intentions about your marriage are split intentions, like as much as you say you want to stay married and be married, like that marriage is not going to last because you have split intentions around it. And I was literally stopped in my tracks. I was like running, training for a half marathon or something. And I like literally stopped because I was like, oh my God, I felt like so exposed in the moment. And so what it named for me was like, I was not happy in the marriage. I was really, you, but I felt like, okay, well, he's not like abusive. He's not doing these horrible things. So I felt like I didn't have like a legitimate reason to not want to be married. You know what I mean? So I just kind of tucked that away for a little bit and didn't quite do anything about it. But then the interesting thing that happens again, like the universe will like open up some things for you. So that happened like maybe in May of 2014. Well, in September of 2014, I'm like on the home computer looking for something with my email and this email pops up Oh goodness! that shows like that some things have been going on. Right. And so there was no hard evidence of like a sexual affair, but like clearly there was something going on. So he insisted, okay, it was not sexual. It was just emotional, yada, yada, yada. But at that point, so at that point, it didn't really matter though, right? Like I had already been thinking toward like, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. And it was like, this was an example of like, you know, maybe (laughs) maybe this is like what your intuition is pointing to. Like something just didn't quite feel right. Um, But even at that point, it was like, I wasn't quite ready to let go. So I was like, okay, let me give myself some time to think through like who I am, what am I, and you know, who am I in terms of my identity with being a mother, my identity with being a wife, my identity with being um, a professor. So I had to unpack that. So in terms of like to streamline this a little bit, you know, because this was a long process. But for me, it basically went from like 2014 to 2017. And for me, those stages of change included like doubt, like just kind of dealing with satisfaction or dissatisfaction with the marriage, the roles that we were playing or not playing. Um, then there was the denial, like a point at which I was like, okay, well, maybe I can really be happy. You know, maybe it's not what, I, you know, maybe these things are not happening that I think are happening. Um, And then it's like disaster where it's just like, okay, I really have to face and confront the reality that like, I don't want this anymore. And, you know, this is going to come to an end. Um, And then I had to do the deeper work. And that's when I really did a lot of counseling, got a lot of coaching, did a lot of energy work, went to retreats and things like that, just to kind of figure out again, like who I would like deal with those existential and personal crises that were coming up for me in the context of making that decision. And then once that deeper work was done, then I could get into the details of like the logistics of like going through the, um, getting a mediator, sorting out child custody, sorting out the finances and all of those kinds of things. And then once those things were in place, then, you know, we did the legal divorce 
Um, and then after the legal divorce, then it's like delight. It's all good. It's happily unmarried. <laughs> right. And so it's just like, you know, the feeling of relief of like, OK, you know, I have accepted the end of this relationship. I mean, we have four children together. So it was important for us to be able to still co-parent from a place of positivity for the kids. But to really be able to like let go of that chapter and that part of my life and be opened up to new possibilities like dating and erotic empowerment and all of those kinds of things. I know so much. For listeners out there, I mean, common sense would tell us that no, this is not this is not an easy process, right? Like divorce itself is not easy, especially when finances, property, children is all tethered together through this sort of relationship. But I think really, at least what I hear, and perhaps the audience will also appreciate, is that this was a process in discovering you. Absolutely. And then trying to figure out, like, what does Catherine need and want in order to be happy? And, you know, I'm sure there was no mistake that there's something in your spirit that was open to receiving the message, even though it was like an audiobook. Right. <laughs> right. And that's why you probably felt so open and on um, blast, even though you're probably running, because I presume that's a solitary moment for you, as it is for most people who enjoy running. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, I get it where people release and mm-hmm. then you, you're hearing, oh my goodness, oh, you talking about me. Yeah. And, you know, and so I guess not to be in your business, but I'm even. No, be in my business. I'm an open book because this is the thing. And this is why I say that, because I think what I found is whenever I tell any part of my story, especially with like other high achieving black women, other women of color, there's a part of that that resonates with people because we, we, we tend to think like I'm the only person who's experiencing this. And so there's a kind of isolation and alienation and shame that happens with it that I'm really trying to change and shift. Right. So I really am willing to talk through and answer questions about this so that other people who are having similar kind of situations and circumstances can see themselves and see like, you know, there are options and there's a way out and you are not your, your marital status. You know what I mean? And that people have similar journeys. For sure. Because you're spiritually, emotionally, physically in, in a different space, mm-hmm. but there was something in your spirit that was telling you that you and your partner were off. Yeah. And let's say, had you not checked your email, if you didn't see or get some sort of confirmation, do you think you probably would have stayed in in the relationship and continue on this path? So I think the relationship was going to come to an end. Like, and I think the starting point for me opening up to that reality was like when I heard that those words in the audiobook. It was like the audiobook was naming something that I felt before I even knew the email stuff. Mm. So I think like that was really the starting point even before, or, or if I had not seen the emails. There, I mean, and part of this has to do with the coaching too. I mean, when I'm coaching, I'm all about, okay, how can we live our most authentic, empowered lives? And for me, if, you know, because I was unhappy, I was unsatisfied in the marriage, I felt like I was living inauthentic, like um, inauthentically, right? And so it wasn't, you know, at a certain point, it wasn't about what he was doing or what he wasn't doing or what he had done or had not been doing. It was like, okay, me, where I am now, like at this stage in my kind of own evolutionary process, like this is a relationship that no longer fits like where I am and where I'm going. And so I think I would have eventually gotten to that point, even if I hadn't had that example of the email. So yeah, I think it would have, um, you know, I'm not sure how long it would have taken. I mean, and then even, you know, from 20, it still took me like a good two years before I got to the place of like being able to say out loud, you know, I don't want to be married anymore. Mm. I had to admit that first to myself. And then I have like, you know, my inner circle of people who, you know, kind of helped me think through and process that um, before I got to the point of like, yeah, you know, I'm sure that this is what I want to do. In tandem, because you have all of this sort of academic and professor or professorial sort of responsibilities and work. Mm-hmm. And then you'd also talked about the fact that you were engaged in different types of coaching. Would you say that the space around transitioning in your personal relationship was part of that pivotal moment that confirmed to you that you wanted to do something else or to expand your coaching? I mean, I would say it was definitely, it it was both. And so there's a way in which like I was on my own journey of like self-discovery and evolution and learning and growth. And so part of that was doing things like getting the yoga certifications to become, you know, doing like yoga teacher training. Part of that was going to like different conferences and different workshops that just, you know, following my intuition in terms of what appealed to me and what spoke to me. And it's like the more that I was doing that to build myself up and to get more clarity about who I was, 
the more easily I could see what was like no longer aligning or no longer fitting with like who I was and who I was becoming. And so, you know, like that marriage was one of those things that just no longer fit. Um, And then the coaching for me, like in terms of the connection between the, the academics and the coaching, I think at a certain point within the academy, I became, or I know I became disillusioned with some aspects of it. Like there are things about it that I love and then there are things about it that I could do without. So for me, the coaching was another way of connecting to my sense of power and applying the philosophical knowledge and insight and analysis I have in a different context. So it allowed me to like stay connected to what um, I'm passionate about in philosophy and apply it in a different context through the coaching. Act two, the road. So what would you say is your passion? Ah, the passion. So again, on the professor academic side, I really have a passion for research and writing. I love the idea that I get paid to read and write. Like that is something that never ceases to amaze me. And that, you know, I I get excited about, you know, I love the fact that I can have an idea. Like I want, I'm interested in X, you know, in this, in this person, place or concept. And, and, and I can like, you know, I have travel funds and research budgets that allow me to like go and do the research, you know, see archives, do whatever writing. So I love that as I, you know, I love the research, the writing and the traveling part of, um, of my academic work. Um, I get excited about creating spaces for others, especially, but not exclusively like black women and women, women of color to flourish and shine. So for example, founding the Clegium of Black Women Philosophers, co-founding the Critical Philosophy of Race Journal, and along similar lines, like organizing conferences and symposia and things like that, like those are my ways of bringing a little bit of like that Spelman experience and that childhood experience of growing out, growing up in these empowered spaces into spaces that can feel very disempowering for um, for women and people of color and women of color in particular. On the coaching side of things, I'm really passionate about the coaching workshops and retreats that I offer. I mean, they really do, as I was just saying, keep me connected to what attracted me to philosophy in the first place and apply it in a way that's not tied to, like if I'm teaching philosophy in the classroom, you know, there is, you know, there's the grading, there's other kinds of things that happen. But when you're coaching with somebody, like their, their investment in the philosophical uptake is very different when they're like really trying to shift things in their life as opposed to like get a grade on a paper. Um, So that has allowed me to kind of, again, transition that passion in a different kind of way. So I love that I can bring like the various philosophical traditions that I'm rooted in from critical philosophy of race and existentialism and feminism to things like yoga and mindfulness and meditation um, into my coaching work. And I often describe my coaching method as a kind of embodied existentialism because I do take seriously like that mind-body connection, the physical and metaphysical inquiry that's important in our lives, the power of self-awareness and self-acceptance and self-love, and just the insights that we gain when we do ask those deeper questions of ourselves. Um, So a lot of times I'll talk about how as academics, we tend to focus from like the head, the neck up, right? Like we're in our mind so much and not so much in our physical bodies. And so it's been important for my own journey and like when I'm coaching other people to help them really connect back to their physical bodies um, and, and the knowledge and awareness and insights that are like both not only in your mind, but also in your physical body. You know, when I think about friends and colleagues that are in so many different physical and geographic places, we have a lot of lip service around um, our mindfulness of our bodies and listening yeah. to our bodies as part of our yeah. own self-care. But yet a lot of us don't follow through with that because sometimes mm-hmm. there's just a lot going on in our heads, right? right? Whether it's about literally the work that we're doing and we're just very cerebral. But then also there's a lot of responsibility that many of us do take on that we lose or we become disconnected from our physical bodies as well and well-being yeah. in that way. So you are intentional as in, in your practice around making sure that there's a connection maintained between the mind and the body. Yeah. I mean, and I used to say, I mean, I joke, like I could, I could theorize about like black women's embodiment and sexual objectification and all of this kind of stuff. But like, it's like, okay, where is your physical body though? Right. And if for me, it wasn't even like, I have four children, right? Like I had four full-term pregnancies and births and even less. Bless that, you, child. Bless. My body. I know. <laughs> 
So for me, what was powerful about yoga is yoga is what helped me really connect to my physical body um, in a different kind of way and um, practice more awareness around that. Or even the running that we were talking about earlier, like I've never been athletic. I wasn't athletic in high school or college. I didn't really start working out until I was in grad school. There was another black woman in my cohort who was really um, intentional about exercising. So I started exercising with her in graduate school. And then on the tenure track here, I was able to connect to a community of women of color and we would um, run to, we trained for a half marathon together. And we also wrote our books together and got tenure together. So that became like a way of gathering like both around our mind power and our body power. So we would run, do training for the half marathon in the morning, go home, shower, change, come back to my house and my finished basement and work on our books together. And like that was a powerful kind of, um, mind-body connection, but also just connection with other beautiful, brilliant women in community, um, you know, in this process of getting tenure. How important is that to you in terms of showing up in these spaces as a Black person, African-descended person, as an African-descended woman? I mean, because I think about just how nuanced your coaching has become, particularly with happily unmarried and mm-hmm. the erotic empowerment. And I don't know how conscious this was. I mean, I think this question now it has me reflecting on it. But, you know, I think because I was raised in, in such an empowering environment with just, again, like beautiful, black, and um, beautiful, brilliant, empowered black people. And then going to Spelman College where you got more of that, you know, like that was kind of my normal. And it wasn't until I was in these predominantly white institutional spaces that I was like, oh, this is not actually the normal <laughs> for other spaces. So I, wa- so I wanted to be intentional about like continuing that, like coming from this place of empowerment and enoughness as opposed to coming from this space of like feeling inferior and the imposter syndrome and all those kinds of things. So it was like, okay, if, if the support system that I want is not in the space that I'm in, then I will create that support system. So that's something, you know, where, and that's where a lot of the founding has come from. So like in graduate school, I started an Ida B. Wells philosophical forum for the students of color who were in philosophy so that we could have community and talk through some things. And that's an organization that still operates like at the University of Memphis. And then as a professor on the tenure track, that's where founding the Kalingam of Black Women Philosophers came in. It's like, okay, how can we gather together and um, get in community with those of us who are here? And then how do we expand the numbers? So even though there were only 16 at the time when I was an undergrad in the late 90s, now there's closer to about 50. Um, And that's just been over, you know, the years of recruiting, retaining, um, getting Black women through PhD programs, a lot of whom have come through um, Penn State University where I am. Um, so I think it's like, you know, not trying to make myself smaller, not trying to like conform to the space that I'm in, but showing up as my authentic self, bringing my lived experience and the inside of that lived experience with me, recognizing that that's value added to the space, not something that I need to be kind of pulling back or, or hiding in the space. So it's very important to me to be able to show up as my full self, um, in the spaces that I'm in and let other people adjust instead of feeling like I have to constantly adjust myself and comport myself in a certain kind of way. Um, in other spaces. And also I'm not messed up about like I'm imposing myself on, in spaces where I'm not wanted. I'm like, let me just create my space with the people that I want to be around, um, you know, and do me. And so fortunately I've been in most of the space, if not all of the spaces I've been in, I've been able to like tap into the resources needed in order to like create those empowerment spaces as opposed to, you know, being the only one in the room, right? So when you come to a collegium of Black women philosophers conference, we're in the overwhelming majority, right? When a black woman stands up to give a paper there, she doesn't need to spend the first five to 10 minutes legitimizing why what she's doing is philosophical because she knows we know what she's doing is philosophical because she's a <laughs> philosopher and she's saying it, you know what I mean? So that, that's that been important to me. And then even with like the um, happily unmarried and the erotic empowerment thing, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that I'm grappling with, again, with my own lived experience, but also just, you know, the history of like the hypersexualization of black women or, you know, these representations of like the baby mama and all of that kind of stuff. Like we're constantly contending with these stereotypes and these historically oppressive, um, controlling images. And so like, those are things that I had to work through, right. As a high achiever, you know, how do I make sense of this decision to end this marriage, right. To not be, to, to be an, uh, you know, a no longer married mother or a single mother, right. Like what does that mean? And how, you know, how, how am I defining myself in terms of that or my value in terms of that? So those were things that definitely had to be thought through. And then with the erotic empowerment, like where do you tap into that erotic empowerment without feeling like you're being subjugated to like this Jezebel hypersexual image, right. 
you know what I mean? And so those are things that I think is important to think through, but also, you know, to kind of move beyond so that you can, you know, feel empowered both in terms of the happily unmarried things and also in terms of um, the erotic. And for me, the erotic is also not just sexual, right? Like it's really inspired actually by Audre Lorde's uses of the erotic, the erotic as power, yes. right? Where, yes, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> and so there, I mean, she, she differentiates between like the erotic and the pornographic, but a lot of what she says around the erotic, I think you could think in terms of like, what is my sense of purpose in the world? Like, what am I here to contribute? And how can I honor that and respect that? What, what those deeper desires are and, and manifest those in my life. Mm. Um, so that's part of it. And then the ecstasy part comes from um, Kathleen Collins has a movie called Losing Ground that came up and came, well, she wrote and produced in like 1982. And interestingly, the, the lead character, the protagonist, her name is Sarah. She's a black woman philosophy professor <laughs> who is on this journey of like ecstasy. Like what the, and so she's trying to grapple with like the thinking rational part of her mind, like theorizing what ecstasy is and having like an embodied physical experience of ecstasy. And so that's, those are the kind of two motivations for the naming of that initiative of like erotic empowerment and embracing ecstasy. R.J. Lord is one of my favorite authors. And one of my, one of my first books that I read of hers was Zami. Yes. It really fits nicely with what you've just said, because even when she talks about love and self-love too, her, that was a process for her. And yeah. Zami really, Zami's her coming out as well as her own kind of um, self-exploration kind of mm-hmm. text that's very autobiographical and that you could just even tell that there are moments that she was still grappling with how to love herself mm-hmm. and love the body that she's in mm-hmm. and then kind of reconcile that with all these other kinds of societal pressures and how she needed to release certain things, how she sometimes reified some of those same things that she was trying to reject at the same time. Yeah, And, and that's all of us in our daily lives, that we are Definitely. filled with these contradictions. But I think half the battle is just having a full awareness of the contradictions mm-hmm. and actually feel empowered in making choices going forward. Let us engage and appreciate the the range of sexual identities and personhood mm-hmm. that we as people embody. Right. So whether you are pansexual, hetero, or what have you, or non-binary, physically loving yourself, Physically, even if it's about loving yourself in terms of positive self-talk to masturbation, right? Absolutely. Yes. I have a meditate and masturbate t-shirt from Afrosexiology. (laughs) Self-pleasure is important. Well, I mean, I think a couple of things, like part of it is going going back even to this idea of like a mindfulness practice, right? And so practicing that self-awareness, self-acceptance, self-love, like it takes slowing down and just being able to sit with yourself for a while to kind of sit with and reflect on those different contradictions and tensions and in your own lived experience and what you've learned, what you've been taught, what you want to unlearn. So part of it is like, okay, what have I learned up to this point that has got me where I am? What still serves me and what no longer serves me and no longer fits, right? And so how can I unlearn that? And then what do I want to replace that with, you know, being open to other options and possibilities? And so for me, you know, again, doing and going to different workshops and retreats has been helpful. Bibliotherapy is a big thing for me. Like I read, you know, this is one of the great things about being an academic and a professor, right? Like we have access to and surrounded by all kinds of books and people are doing all kinds of interesting work around this. So, so that's important, but I do definitely. And I think now it's an interesting time to, you know, I don't want to over romanticize like how accepting people are of different, um, like gender fluidity and sexual fluidity and things like that. But it is a really amazing time to be exploring those kinds of things because there's just more resources and more examples and models of that, I think available now. So it's been, um, it's been a great experience for me and you have to know yourself. This is where I was going when you talked about the masturbation. It's so important to know, like I'm learning, it was important for me to really know, get to know my own body and what gave me pleasure if I was going to be with any kind of partner or partners who could pleasure me, right? Like to be able to articulate what you want and you what you need, you like have to explore that for yourself. You have to be with yourself and figure that out. I think that's deep to even acknowledge because I don't think that sometimes women in general are fully in their bodies all of the Absolutely. time, particularly yeah. when there is some sort of sexual intimacy. And I yeah. think there's certain kind of taboos that even as women and or non-binary individuals, when we are in partnership, sometimes we're socialized not to talk about, well, what feels good, what doesn't feel good. Mm -hmm. And it's important to be able to just be in a place where you can say, you know what, I want to be able to articulate and say, you know what, I actually like that. Or... 
or I um, don't like that. And yeah. I really don't like that. So yeah. then we won't be doing that, you know? In my happily unmarried life, the, my, my partners are very much like, know what you want and how you want it. And you can articulate that. And they want that all that. It's like that Neo song, Say It. I don't know if you've heard that song. Maybe <laughs> tell listeners to, to um, check out that song. But I think that also requires a level of, you know, again, that's the self-awareness, the self-acceptance, right. the self-love, and then feeling empowered enough, like in yourself and your body and worthy enough to ask for that, right? So a lot of times we're, you know, socialized to think, well, you're lucky to get a husband or you're lucky, you know, like this is some kind of prize. And so you need to like protect his ego at all costs. So you don't need to be talking about like how much money you make versus how much money he, he makes. And you don't need to be talking about what's not satisfying you in the bedroom. You just need to like make sure his ego is stroked. But I can remember when, it, when this really first occurred to me in a major way was reading Octavia Butler's parable series. And it's like this. Yeah you know, dystopia, utopia, but like, you know, when they're fleeing, I don't want to, no spoilers for people who haven't read that because you should read that. But at one point, like, you know, they're like on the move, they need to relocate from one location to another location. Like, you know, there's like stuff is happening all around them. And she's like trying to hook up with this dude. And I'm thinking in my mind, like your, your life is on the line. How are you having time to hook up with some dude and you're like fleeing for your life? But Because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You got to live for today. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, that's precise. Nicely the time when you need to be getting some pleasure. So I love how you've talked about all the different kinds of lessons you've learned. In all of those lessons, were there particular failures you experienced? And if so, how did you turn things around? I think this is an interesting question. I don't know if this is, you know, I'm thinking about what failures I've experienced. I mean, I think there are some basic failures like, you know, you're in grad school, you apply for some jobs you didn't get, or you apply for some grant or something like that that you didn't get. But I don't always think about those as failures. It's just like, okay, it's another opportunity to explore what other options are available. I think even with the marriage, I think for some people, they see divorce as a form of failure. But for me, I see it as like, I didn't fail at marriage. I succeeded at getting happily unmarried. (laughs) You know what I mean? So I think part of it is, um, I do think there's, and, and this might be just my mother's upbringing of like kind of being able to accentuate the positive, but I've been able to really look at any kind of failure or mistake that's been made as an opportunity to learn, to grow, to do something different. Um, So there are certainly things that like in parenthood or even in the context of the marriage that it's like in hindsight, I might've done that differently. Um, But it's, it's where the failures and mistakes happen that a lot of times some really powerful growth can happen and some really powerful learning can happen. Even when I'm doing coaching, I talk about like failing faster and surrendering to success. And then I don't, I mean, it's like, how do you, you know, like mistakes are gonna happen. You're gonna have to recalibrate. So how do you just embrace that and let that happen more quickly and rapidly as opposed to like just kind of wallowing in all the things you would have could have or should have done. So it's just like, okay, how do you focus on what the experience is there to teach you, what opportunities are available, um, and how you can kind of shift your energy, your intention, your planning, your corresponding action in terms of how you want to move forward. Act three, where we land. I think this would be a great time for you to share with the audience, our listeners. What's your latest project? What do you, what is it that you're doing? Where are you at right now? What are you most excited about personally, professionally, all that good stuff? So the personal and professional are really converging for me in amazing ways right now, especially with the coaching work. So I really am enjoying like being a high achiever, you know, being an academic, writing the books and all of those kinds of things that continues to spark joy for me um, and being able to share you know, my process through my coaching workshops and retreats with other high achievers in terms of how they're planning, how they want to map out their projects, um, what kind of trajectory they want um, in their professional lives. So that's something that's exciting for me as I continue to go through it in my own life and exciting for me to be able to share with other people. I really am celebrating like this happily unmarried journey. Like I cannot articulate or express fully enough how amazing and empowering it's been. And I don't want to downplay like the challenges because there were definitely some challenges and just going through that process, but encouraging anybody who's going through like a divorce or any kind of difficult time, like you really just have to get through it and get to the other side of it to see how beautiful the other side of that is. But it's like, if you don't get through it to the other side, then then you don't get to see the beauty of it. 
So, um, so I really am like in this place of bliss on, um, on the happily unmarried journey. And so I'm enjoying being able to share that process with people and go through, like I said, what those seven stages are so people can see like, you know, it is a process. It's not an overnight thing. Um, but there are ways that you can be intentional about what that process is as you go through those stages to kind of come out on the other side. And then the erotic empowerment journey. I mean, that has been like, I've been in my body and in my physical body and enjoyed physical pleasure in a way that I could not have imagined possible, you know, in my twenties or my thirties. Wow, girl. (laughs) Oh my goodness. I'm like, who knew this world of pleasure was available all of this time? And so, you know, what I like to say there is again, not focusing on regret of like, I wish I did this then because I think who I was in my twenties and thirties was not prepared for like the experience that I'm having now. So it took those past experiences to prepare me to really be open to receive these present experiences. Wow. Speak on that. Wow. That's yeah. powerful, right? Just, yeah. just acknowledging where you're at. Right. Because I think I couldn't have enjoyed it as much as I'm enjoying it now then because, you know, I was a different person then, right? Like, so I, it's because of the experiences I've had up to this point that I can really be open to like not only physical stimulation, but intellectual stimulation, you know, emotional connection, but also like open and honest communication. So being able to talk through like consent and what I'm okay with and what I'm not okay with. And again, it's not just sexual. It's like when you're able to get clarity about what you want and communicate what you want and and intimacy in those spaces, it translates into you being able to communicate those things in workspaces and family spaces and other spaces. So what is it that you're doing specifically as part of La Belle Vie? Because you have an updated website where people can sign up for different things that are coming up. So each of these, so I have the, these are basically my three signature offers. So I have the high achievers, um, successful strategies for 10 common challenges. And that's where I identify, like when I look at the clients that I've worked with over time, and then even in my own process, what are the top 10 issues that kind of come up recurringly um, with those clients? And what are the strategies that I teach them in order to overcome those challenges. So I have a virtual multi-week program, which is basically like a small group coaching program via Zoom that I offer for that. Um, I also have a virtual 12-month program. So you could think of the multi-week program as like a kind of intensive. And then 12-month program is stretch over the course of a year. So that's where you can really cultivate and develop and go deeper into those um, strategies that you learn in the um, in the intensive. Um, and then I'm also looking to offer a weekend retreat um, in that initiative in 2020. And um, with the Happily oh, Unmarried Initiative, um, that is also, it's, it's the same model. So I have like a virtual kind of intensive multi-week program, a 12-month program that kind of goes over the course of a year, and then a weekend retreat. And then finally, with the erotic empowerment and learning to embrace ecstasy, you know, again, there's like a multi-week intensive program and then the 12-month longer program where you can go deeper um, and a weekend retreat with that. So um, there are Think, you know, if you, you can go, to go website, deeper on a weekend retreat. Yes, you can go <laughs> deeper in every way you want to think about going deep. So each of those signature programs has the multi-week version, the 12-month version, and um, and a weekend retreat. And there's more details about that available on, um, on my website. And I have um, an email list where I also send out updates. So um, people are welcome to sign up for that. KatherineBell.com. So K-A-T-H-R-Y-N. B-E-L-L-E.com. You know, as we're wrapping up our time together, I'm just wondering if you share a couple of audience takeaways that, you know, may inspire them on their own journeys of belonging to Blackness. It's so important to give yourself permission to focus on you. I mean, I think a lot of times, again, especially for women, women of color, people of color, We are so accustomed to pouring ourselves out to other people and giving to the point of just emptiness and and, and fatigue and exhaustion. But it's so important to take some time to kind of take a step back, restore yourself, replenish yourself, figure out what you want and what you need so that when you are giving, you can give from a place of empowerment and not a place of depletion. You know, take some time out for you. Make sure you're moving your body, trying to eat healthy and those kinds of things, but also taking that time for, you know, meditation, for silence, for stillness to figure out, you know, who you are 
who you want to be and giving yourself permission to evolve, right? So who you were five years ago, 10 years ago may not fit who you are now. So taking some time to journal and reflect on what your own evolutionary process has been to get you to this point and where, you know, what you want your trajectory to be moving forward, being unapologetically yourself in the spaces that you're in. So not feeling like you have to like conform and imitate what other people are doing, but really being okay with being who you are in the room. Other takeaways, I would say not comparing yourself to other people, right? Because mm-hmm. your lived experience and, and circumstances are unique and specific to you. And so sometimes we can think like, oh, this person is doing X, Y, and Z. Why am I not doing X, Y, and Z? Well, you know, that person is dealing with a different set of circumstances than you are. And then finally, I would say just embracing like the, the tool and the options available with something like coaching, right? So I always say, you know, I did not get to this point on my own. I had a whole team of support around me in terms of not just my inner circle and friendships, but also counselors and coaches and energy workers and things like that. So it's important to think about what are the tools and resources you need and seek out those tools and resources to support and empower you on whatever your journey is. Thank you so much, Dr. Catherine Sophia Bell, for joining us and sharing your journey of belonging to Blackness. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. There you have it. The journey isn't over, but this episode is. Until next time, peace.